Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. We call it a dewclaw. It's how you know you're one of us. I, uh, I see. And when you say we call it a dewclaw, I mean me and Mama and Daddy and Uncle Freddy and Aunt Sandra and, well, our whole family. So they all talk about that as being a dewclaw? Yep. It's like what my dog Roscoe has, only bigger. That's how Mama first told it to me. Okay, so now who else comes around your ranch, other than your mama and daddy and Uncle Freddy and Aunt Sandra? Hmm, that's mainly it, except for Jonathan. That's Uncle Freddy and Aunt Sandra's son. He used to play with me when we were little, but he's all grown up now, and he don't come around no more anyway. That's Jonathan Peterson? Yep, that's him. Why doesn't he come around anymore? I don't know. Maybe because he got mad last time. He saw me after the docking and he started crying and cursing and stuff. He said it wasn't right. It wasn't right what they'd done to me. He tried to talk to me, but my parents, they protected me. Daddy told me later it wasn't anything to worry about. Said Jonathan was just upset because his adult D-claws hadn't come in yet. Because he hasn't done the necessary. Okay, so, because I want to make sure I understand everything, let's kind of break down some of what you're talking about, okay? Yes, ma'am. So what is docking? You don't know that? You're playing with me. No? Okay, if you say so. Well, docking is when you get to a certain age. With girls, it's usually when you first get your color. They have to clip off your baby dew claws. It hurts something awful, but they have to do so so your adult dew claws can grow right in. It hurts something awful, but they have to do it so your adult dew claws can grow in right. Uh, sorry. Just, uh, just give me a second. Yes, ma'am. No need to cry about it. It hurts, but we're made tough. We can make it. Yes, well, that's good. Um, you said... You said something about Jonathan's, his adult Dewclaws hadn't come in because he hadn't done the necessary? What's that? Gosh, I thought you'd know that part for sure. Okay, well, when one of us reaches 16, we have to do the necessary. We have to kill a person and eat their heart. And it can't be one of us. It has to be one of you. After that, our adult dew claws grow in and we get real strong, real tough. Okay, so when you say us and one of you, what do you mean? Well, I mean, uh, we're werewolves and you're just a normal person, right? I don't mean no harm, ma'am. You can't help it. And you're in no danger from me. I made a promise to myself a long time ago I'd only take one life. And that was for the necessary I just don't feel right about it. 
So the social worker, the woman who was out at your ranch yesterday, do you know what happened to her? I do. That lady was my necessary. I promise I killed her as quick as I could. She didn't scream for long, and she was dead when I took her heart. Don't tell, but Daddy helped me with getting it out. I had trouble holding the knife. So you are saying you killed that lady yourself? Yes, ma'am. Because she was your necessary? Yes, ma'am. And your parents are the ones that... That docked you? Yes, ma'am. How old were you when they did that? Um, I was 11, going on 12. And they told you that you and your family are werewolves. That your... Your dew claws would grow back when you did your necessary? That's right. Okay. Have you ever been away from the ranch before today? Sure, sure, plenty of times. Out in the woods, learning to hunt and fish and camp. I love going out there. Well, yeah, all right. I, I, I meant more like, have you ever been to towns or cities? Places like where you are now. Not this building. I don't mean that. But you saw all the cars and people on the way in, right? Yes, ma'am. Have you ever been around anything like that? Been to school or talked to people other than your family? No, ma'am. Mama told me it wasn't safe for our kind to mix too much until we're grown. They taught me themselves, and they did a real good job. But I am excited about getting to meet more people. I think I'm more excited about that than I am getting so strong and tough when my dewclaws come back in. When do you think that'll happen, ma'am? When do I think what will happen, honey? When do you think my dew claws will grow back? I woke up last night because the spots were itching, and I was so excited I could barely go back to sleep. But when I got up today, they were just the same. Do you know when they'll come back? I... I don't know, baby. I guess I don't know a lot about werewolves and dew claws and stuff. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, it's okay. I bet it'll be soon. Hey, what do you call them? What do I call what? Your dew claws. I mean, I know they're not for real dew claws like mine if you're just a regular person. But you didn't know to call them that, so you must call them something else. So what do you call them? Thumbs, baby. We call them thumbs. This story gets told a lot at the department I used to work for. After it happened, I'm pretty sure we actively talked about it for like, almost a year straight. Just about every shift we were all still like, what the hell? Then I got tired of telling the story, when we would bid a new shift. And I'd work a new station to the new firefighters, medics, or EMTs, who would ask me about it. I'm now a firefighter paramedic about 250 miles north of where I used to work. Have been since 2017. So enough time has gone by where I've sort of buried what I can't understand, and I've reasoned with what I should understand. It's a nice treat for no sleep. So here you guys go. The shift started at 1900, and our shift ended at 0700 the following day. My partner Brandon and I worked this unit for quite some time. It was a busier unit. We got along really well, probably too well. Can't believe we never got fired for the stupid crap we'd say and do. We would mostly drink Red Bulls, 
play the circle game and punch each other in the arm and see how many nurses' phone numbers we could get before they all hated us. It was a glorious time. Our area was on the outskirts of town. I won't say the city, but it's as southwest as you can go in the U.S. before you're in Mexico. There was a rather large incident that occurred while we were offloading one of our patients. Instead of being dispatched to the location, we were sent to cover a district for another ambulance who had to respond on our behalf. The district was rural, straight up BFE, practically Tijuana. You could smell salsa in the air. Pretty sure the radio switched to Spanish. I think you get the picture. Brandon knew of a 24-hour taco shop and we stopped there to grab some food. I bet him $20 he couldn't eat his burrito in less than two minutes. I literally watched him inhale it, choke on it, and pull a piece of carne asada out of his left nostril by a minute 30. Then we got a call. Trying to stop laughing so we didn't sound like retards on the phone. Medic 11 responding. It was my turn as patient person, so Brandon was driving. I was looking at the computer to see what the call was about, and the chief complaint said, Demons. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Your reaction was my reaction, too. We basically rolled our eyes at whatever moron in dispatch put that in for us, so we were 100% sure this was going to be some crap call. Probably a psych call or toe pain. It was a long response. I mean, we're the closest unit, and I think we were about 10 to 12 miles away. It was way out in the desert. We pull off the highway and started going down a dirt road towards the house. It was the only house probably within 20 miles. As we roll up to the property, my initial assessment of the scene was this is creepy as hell. There were no cars out front, it was pitch black outside, and the house was glowing by candlelight. You could literally see every window of the house glowing orange, and you could see what looked like hundreds of candles. So we started making demon jokes. We radioed in that we were on scene, and we started knocking on the screen door. The front door was open, and we could see inside. We could smell like incense kind of smells, and the house was pretty smoky looking. This little tiny Mexican lady sweating her ass off lets us in the house. No English. She's holding a rosary and repeatedly makes the sign of the cross. Guys, there were candles everywhere. It was instantly like 20 degrees warmer when we walked inside. Wax puddling in some areas. She takes us to the living room, and there is a 20-something-year-old male convulsing on the floor. The lady raised her voice and starts slapping me, and she points to a snake coiled up in the corner of the room. It's a rattlesnake. She motions with her hands like a bite and clutches her arm and points to our patient. Now we have to upgrade the call, since this is a rattlesnake bite victim at the freaking Mexican William Sonoma. We requested fire so they could help us out and remove the snake. The snake was a good 9 or 10 feet away from the patient and seemed relaxed and not agitated, so we started looking for the location of the bite to begin treatment. As I'm setting up the O2, we start hearing screams coming from inside the house, the screams I have never heard before in my life, like fatigued, last resort type screams. I look at the little Mexican lady 
and she looks just as concerned as me. Brandon goes down the hall, and I radio in again for police. Brandon comes back, grabs me by my collar, and pulls me out of the house. I was like, yo dude, what the hell? Get in. He jumps in the ambulance and locks the doors after I close mine. This is messed up, bro, Brandon said. I asked him what was going on, and I'll never forget. He turns to me and he said, I just saw a guy eating his hand. That's right. Brandon went down the hall, turned into the first bedroom he could, and said there was a guy standing in the corner eating a bloody nub and with blood all over his face and body. Brandon Landline's dispatch on his cell phone and told him what was going on. I remember he said, how do I put this? We're on the set of a horror film. As we wait, the little Mexican lady comes out and falls to her knees, crying and waving at us to come to her. Butthole perk factor is at full capacity at this point. Fire finally shows up and we get some confidence back. Strength in numbers type thing. We felt way less scared. So we all go in the house. The captain puts the snake in a sack. We get the snake bite victim all hooked up in the engine medic beelines for the hallway after we tell him about the guy bleeding in the first bedroom. The engine medic comes back. I'm not freaking going in there. The captain stops blowing out candles and goes down the hall. Whoa, 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 whoa. We all stop what we're doing. The captain is even freaking out. I swear to God, that guy just floated. Instant goosebumps. That guy just floated. Captain swears he walked into the bedroom and the guy was four-ish feet off the ground spinning. Brandon and I look at each other as if to say what in the actual hell is happening right now. Cops show up and detain the now combative guy biting his arm who just floated. We get the snake bite victim into our ambulance right before the captain almost requests a helicopter to have him airlifted due to the distance to the hospital and other factors in play. But we got him loaded up and we just bolt lights and sirens. Brandon is driving. I'm in the back of the rig with the patient. At first I couldn't tell if it was the better lighting inside our ambulance or what, but the patient looked so much better. Like, fine, almost. His signs were good. Heart rate normal. He just sort of was staring at me. I looked everywhere I could within reason and found no signs of bite or any bite marks. He just laid there on the gurney, all peaceful and quiet. We offload him, and Brandon and I just sort of scratch our heads, at first, and then go, WTF. Since we were still technically covering this district, we had to return to quarters, fire station, and we catch back up with that fire crew from the call. Fire crew said the same thing, with that guy biting his arm. As soon as he left the house and got into the next ambulance, he started freaking out that his hand was missing. One of the firefighters was Mexican and spoke Spanish, and said that the little old lady said these two guys just appeared in her house. She was watching TV and they just popped up out of nowhere. She said they were speaking like the devil, so she called 911 and started reciting Hail Mary and lighting candles and sage. The captain was having an existential crisis over allegedly witnessing another person floating through midair. 
He said the guy was floating and just kept flipping and flipping and flipping over. A few weeks go by, and we get information from one of the responding officers that both of the guys were from Mexico. Both stated they went to bed that night and woke up in that lady's house. Then we all started getting really into this and trying to figure out what happened. It's a lot of he said, she said. A lot of it's factual. I know exactly what I saw. Anyways, that's the whole story. It's definitely changed my perception of things. Call it religion or the supernatural. It's creepy as hell because it was real. My dearest love, I had never fallen in love before. I had not thought myself capable of it. After all my life, the horrors I'd endured, I didn't think I had room in my heart for anything but self-preservation and anger. Until I met you. You came to my captor's house every weekend to do chores for him. In his old age, he'd become too frail to do anything but assure that I was safely locked away. You'd sweep the floors and do the dishes and glance curiously at the basement door, my basement door, which he'd forbidden you from entering. I didn't pay much attention to you at first. I didn't pay much attention to anyone who came in and out of that bastard's house. I watched and listened to so many people through the vents in the basement. People bored me. They were all the same. Cardboard cutouts of stereotypes long since traced and defined over and over again. People are predictable. Too predictable. Besides, I had no company aside from the old man, who was the most boring and predictable of them all. Whenever I heard his heavy breaths and loud footsteps approaching my cage, I knew exactly what he wanted. But you... I realized I couldn't figure out what you wanted. I didn't know why you would give up your Sundays to clean this pathetic old man's house. Most teenage boys would be out with friends, going to parties. And you liked parties, just as much as the next guy. I would hear you laughing on the phone with your friends about something or other that happened last weekend at a party. At first, I assumed you were doing it for the cash. But after hearing more phone conversations and watching you leave in the Maserati that your parents had bought you, I realized that wasn't the case. And then one day, I watched you accidentally trip the old man with your mop. You put on a false expression of remorse and horror, and apologized until you ran out of breath. But I saw the look in your eyes, the smile on your face, right before you tripped him. You knew what he was, you saw what I did whenever I looked at him. A monster. The old man must have hurt himself in the fall because you called an ambulance. You told him that you would clean the rest of the house while he was gone, free of charge, and then you would pick him up from the hospital. You waited until the ambulance had turned the corner, driving the old man away from the house, before you crept towards the basement door. My basement door. I heard the door creak open, and I immediately huddled back into the darkest parts of my cage. There were no lights in the basement, but I did not want you to see me. I did not want you to be afraid. 
but I could see you. My eyes had adjusted after all this time spent in the dark. Hello? You called. I did not respond. If the old man found out you'd been down here, that I had spoken to you, there would be hell to pay for the both of us. Despite my lack of a response, you were undeterred. I can hear you breathing, you said. I know someone's down here. Mr. Bridges is gone. You don't have to worry about him. Ah, so that was the old man's name. In all my years of captivity, he had never told me. Perhaps that was for the best. Now that I knew his name, I had some semblance of power, however meager, that I had not had before. He knew everything about me, and I knew nothing about him. But now, now I had something. You took another step towards me. I can help you. I'll get you out of here. You can't help me, I finally said, surprising myself as much as you. You gasped a little. I supposed my voice must have been a little frightening. I hadn't used it in so long, and I was given so little water, that my voice eked out in little hoarse gasps. Yes, I can, you said. I'll set you free. Are you in a cage? I can't see anything down here. You can't set me free. I said. This cage was built for me, specifically to make sure I could never escape. There is no key, no lock, no door. If there's no key, or lock, or door, how did he put you in here? You asked. I don't remember, I replied. This was the truth. How long have you been down here? How long have you been down here? You asked. I don't know. Another truth. All memories of before the basement and before the cage were muddled in my mind, and in the dark, they seemed barely more than dreams to me. There has to be a way to get you out, you said. You stepped closer, close enough for me to finally be able to make out your features. I hadn't seen a face aside from the old man's in so long. I'd almost forgotten what faces looked like, I was so curious to see yours, to match a physical appearance to the voice I knew. You were tall, and lanky, and thin, with big bony hands and large owlish blue eyes. You reminded me of a bird. I've developed a strange affection for birds since. There is no way, I said. I've given up on ever finding one. I'll call the police, you said. No. You stumbled backwards, shocked by my outburst. People have tried to call the cops before, I told you. They always end up dead. The cops that come end up dead too. We've gone from city to city and country to country. And no one who's ever called the cops has survived. I have to try, you said. But your voice cracked at the end, adorably. You were such a good person, sweetness. I could see the good in those huge, pale blue eyes. And I could see that even through your fear, you planned on calling the police anyway. Please don't, I said as sternly as possible. Promise me you won't. You stood still for a moment. Promise me, 
I screamed. I still feel bad for yelling at you. I could see you shaking in fear. I'm sorry for yelling, but I couldn't bear the thought of you getting hurt. I promise, you finally said, voice shaky and high-pitched. Your voice still hadn't dropped, and I could tell it was a source of embarrassment for you. I found it cute. There must be something I can do for you, you said. You can talk to me, I said, a flicker of hope rising up in my chest. I tried to quell it. There was no guarantee you'd say yes. Of course, you said. My heart fluttered when I heard you say that. My sweetness was such a good person. I'd always known it, and it was so foolish of me to doubt that for even a second. You moved to sit cross-legged on the floor in front of my cage. Your knees were bony and knobby. I could see their stark outline under your skin. I was reminded of a baby bird struggling to hold itself up on its delicate, fragile legs. My name's Sam, you said. I'm sixteen. What's your name? I don't remember, I said. That was a lie, and I'm sorry for deceiving you, love. But to tell you I never had a name would have been tough to explain. Well, we'll have to give you a new one then, you said. I need something to call you. Are you a boy or a girl? I can't tell from your voice. I don't know, I said. Another lie. I'll call you Alex, you said. That can be a boy's name or a girl's name. Do you like it? Yes, I said. But that also wasn't totally the truth. The truth was I loved it. I loved it because you gave it to me. You chose to gift it to me, and I hold that name precious to my heart because of that. You smiled, and my heart swelled. Well, after that, you know what happened. The old man was hospitalized for two weeks, and he'd charge you with taking care of the house in his absence. I suppose he thought you'd be too shy and fearful to go into the basement. You were a shy and fearful person, that is true. But your good heart always won through. If he'd known you the way I do, he would have known that too. You would visit me every day. You understood pretty early on that I didn't want to talk about my life. Whenever you asked about me, I always told you I either didn't remember or I didn't want to talk about it. So you would tell me about your life instead, about your friends and your school and your hobbies and everything. You explained that you'd volunteered to work for the old man because you'd heard rumors about him, that he kept people chained in his house. You'd begun the job as a dare, but soon realized there was merit to the rumors. I loved to hear about you. I could always tell you were worried that you were talking too much about yourself. You were humble like that, but you could have been the most arrogant person alive, and I would have never begrudged you a second of it. One day you came down the stairs with a large black bruise spread over your cheekbone, and I could physically feel the swell of anger in my gut at the thought of someone hurting my baby bird. Someone hurt you, was the first thing I said to you. Your eyes dropped to the floor. It's nothing, you said. It's something, I said, and I could feel my voice turning harsh. 
I could see you noticing. My dad just gets you started, voice cracking as you tried to speak. When he drinks, he gets angry. Your mother doesn't protect you? I asked. She can't protect me from a cemetery. You shrugged, cracking a smile that didn't reach your eyes. No siblings? No, you said, and I could see tears rising to your pretty blue eyes, clouding them over. I have no one. You have me, I said. I would protect you. You smiled again, a real one this time, and my heart skipped a beat. I remember all our conversations perfectly. I'd replay them in my head when you were gone, but the conversations that stuck out to me besides the one about your father were the ones about Miranda. Miranda was a girl you went to school with. You told me she was a ballerina, and she had golden curls and long eyelashes like a princess. Of course I was jealous. How could I not have been? Of course it saddened me to hear the fondness in your voice when you spoke of her. But she made you happy. And nothing made me happier than to see my little bird all giddy and excited. I'd imagined what she looked like in my mind. I pictured her as a fairy with a golden crown and a beautiful dress made of rose petals. I imagined she was the most beautiful girl in the world. You deserved nothing less. Then one day you came to me crying. Miranda was dating another guy. You told me how you'd done everything to try and win her favor. How you'd thought she might really like you. But you'd gone to school and seen her kissing another boy in the hallway. Then I imagined her as a witch. An old ugly crone who used magic spells to make herself seem beautiful. Someone not worthy of you, sweetness. You might think this is an odd conversation to bring up, but I bring it up because your sadness wasn't about Miranda. Not really. It was about the fact that you were lonely. Unloved. I wanted to brush the tears away from your face, but I couldn't from in the cage. You cried more often than you smiled, and I wanted to tell you how much I loved you, that I would drag the stars down from their place in the sky for you. But I didn't. I didn't want to scare you off. After the two weeks were up, the old man returned. I had given up trying to free myself years ago, but you had given me a reason to keep living. You'd empowered me to try and escape. That boy didn't ever come down here, did he? The old man said, walking towards my cage. No, I replied. Good, he said. I don't need him seeing the free thing I keep down here. He'd tell someone and you'd find your way out. He gripped the bars of my cage, eyes boring into me. My family has been keeping you in here for centuries. We've been the only things keeping you from raining terror upon the world. I will not be the one to disgrace their legacy by letting you escape. I didn't answer. He got angrier, as I knew he would. Do you hear me? He screamed. I still didn't answer. My lack of response was wounding his pride, the sense of power he had over me. How does it feel? He spat, pressing his face against the bars. How does it feel knowing that you used to be a great mighty thing, 
A thing that felled mountains and murdered gods and wiped out populations. A thing that could reach out and touch the heavens or plunge its hands into the center of the earth. How does it feel knowing that you're nothing but a creature caged by a slow old man? I neglected to respond once again. Tell me, he screamed, rattling the bars. His face pressed hard against my cage. Before he could react, I had closed my jaws around the part of his face that I could reach. He screamed in agony, his body falling backwards. A great tearing noise sounding through the air as the part of his face I had latched into ripped away from his skull. Before he could hit the floor, I stretched a tentacle out between the bars and impaled him through the stomach. He fell to the floor, his blood splattering the bars of the cage. A few seconds passed as he died, and then the cage around me vanished. It had not taken me long to come up with this plan. I knew the old man as I know you, and I knew how to get him to come close, too close, to my cage. It feels so good to be free. I am finally able to stretch my arms and my legs and my tentacles longer than just a few inches. I can stretch my wings out again. All the powers I had before I was put in that awful cage had returned. I was finally myself again. And it is all thanks to you, my love. I'm writing this letter to you because I know it would be somewhat disconcerting to have a being such as me just arriving at your door. I know there is quite a large chance you will want to have nothing to do with me, but oh do I desperately hope that is not the case. I may have 261 mouths, but all the better to kiss you with. I may have 400 arms and 400 legs and 400 tentacles, but all the better to hold you, to touch you with. I may have 344 eyes, but I promise they'll never stray from you. I may have five sets of wings, but that means I can finally help my little bird fly. And I know I'm not a boy or a girl, but I am yours. If you want me, just wish for it to happen and I will come. I can make you the happiest you'd have ever been. I can kill your father. I can resurrect your mother. I can kill Miranda even, if you want. Or I can make her love you. I can give you all the finery in the world. I can make you live the most lavish of lives. I could make you immortal, and we could spend all of eternity together. I would make sure you never cried again. All you have to do is say the word and I will come. Wherever you are, whatever happens, I will always come. Yours forever, Alex. Thank you for making it this far. I hope you enjoyed the video. I just wanted to quickly let you know about a couple things I have going on. I have an Instagram where I post more personal things about who I am. It isn't just all creepy stuff. You can find me at Stories After Midnight. I also have a Twitter where I mainly retweet and like things I find interesting. The handle for that is in the description, but it is S underscore A underscore Midnight. I should really find another one because that's hard to say. If you really like what I'm doing, consider joining the Midnighters. That's my growing community 
where we hang out and have fun and talk about cats. You can find a link to our Discord in the description below. We'd love to see you there. Other than that, it'd make me happier than a cat on a table full of antique glassware. If you'd like the video and consider sticking around for more, we'll see you in the next one. I'm a nurse and I currently work nights. It's a total drag, but I'm hopeful I can go to days soon since some co-workers are planning retirements. Anyway, I was working one night when just after 3 a.m., my son's monitor alerted me to sound and movement. No big deal at all. He probably coughed loudly or sneezed or something. He's three now, so he generally sleeps all night. I bring it up on my phone, and I see him and my wife sitting on the bed. Again, no big deal. He might have cried out or gotten scared or something. I was about to close the app when I noticed they were acting strange, almost creepy. And when I say almost creepy, I mean creepy as balls. They were sitting on the bed together, both of them just staring up at the camera with blank, emotionless stares. The night vision is black and white, so they had white, eerie-looking eyes. They didn't move at all, aside from their visible breathing. They just sat there, staring at the camera. I close the app and give my wife a call to make sure everything is okay. I never get to call home on lunch, so in a way, this is kind of nice to get to talk to my family while at work. It rings a couple times before she answers with a very groggy hello. It was like she was dead asleep when I called, and she looked wide awake when on the camera. Hey, you guys okay? Huh? Yeah. Buddy, my son's nickname, came in like 15 minutes ago, seemed scared, so I said he could sleep with mama. I'm confused here, since I saw them in his room a minute ago. Literally 60 seconds had passed since I closed the app and made the call. Wait, so you guys are in bed? Yeah, I fell back asleep right away. Everything okay? Everybody keeps waking me up. She's kind of annoyed. Hang on a sec. I put her on speaker and bring up the app, hoping I don't see it. When the app loads, I get that pang of intense nervousness in my stomach that I haven't had in a long time since I was a kid in school, and realized while I was eating breakfast, a paper or something was due that day, and I hadn't done it. My heart leaps into my throat. My wife and son are sitting on his bed looking up at the camera. Same emotionless stares. Hello? You guys are in bed, right? Yeah, we're trying to sleep. Well, I'm looking at his camera, and I see you two sitting on his bed. Huh? No, we're in our bed. I know that's what you mean, but I'm looking at his bed, and you two are in there. <sighs> Hang on, she says. She's quiet for a sec while she brings up the camera on her phone. I hear this guttural, terrified gasp, like she had sucked all the air in the room into her lungs, filling them to capacity. I don't hear this kind of gasp from my wife often. Usually only when she's truly afraid, like during a jump scare in a movie. Or one time, when we turned our back on our son for literally a second, 
and he was down by the mailbox, inches from the road. I hear rustling of sheets, and the line goes dead. Of course, now I'm absolutely terrified myself, so I immediately call back. It goes to voicemail, so I call again. I call again and again with no answer. Finally, after about four minutes, she calls me. I tell you that four minutes felt like 40 years. Hey, what's happening? I ask. She's absolutely hysterical and crying. I can't understand a word she says. Stop. S slow, slow down for a second, I say. She slows down enough to explain they are in the car and driving to her parents. She looked at the camera, and when she saw what was on it, she got up and grabbed our son and rushed downstairs and out the door. Didn't even close the garage. Don't worry about it, I said. I'll drive by when I get off and close it. We live in a generally safe neighborhood, so I'm not too concerned the door's up. You will not go in there, she says. Hell no, I return. Why are we on the camera? She asked. Is it a recording? I don't know, I return. I'm going to keep watching it and see if there's anything I can tell. Do our code words with Buddy. We have code words because we're nerds. We've seen too many pod people in imposter movies, so we decided a long time ago to make code words with each other to be able to tell if one of us was an imposter. We have a couple code words, but we also have a three-sentence story we recite together, each saying a different part alternately of each other. I hear her on the phone saying the things we taught our son. He giggles as he says them. He does every time we practice, since he thinks they're a joke and doesn't have any idea of the real meaning. We're both convinced he's our son. My wife then says our part, and I'm convinced she's her. We made up these words as a complete joke to ourselves. I never once in my life ever imagined we'd actually need them. Unreal. She got to her parents safely, and it was hard to hang up. I told her we'll figure it out in the morning, hopefully just a glitch. She said she didn't think it was a glitch. When she was running out, she had to run by our son's room, and the door was open. There's a little flashing light on the back of the camera that indicates it's connected to the internet. It gives off just enough light that when she ran by, she thought she saw it with a corner of her eye. A shadowy outline of what could have been an adult sitting on our son's bed. It sends chills down my spine to think about it. Knowing they were safe and out of the house is the only thing that kept me at work that night. It was a long four hours, but I kept checking the camera every chance I got. Sure enough, they were still sitting on the bed, staring up at the camera with emotionless gazes. I studied them to see if I could see any pattern, from their breathing to their blinking. Their breathing was steady and looked normal. It was their blinking that would tell me if this was just some kind of bizarre, time-looped, freak accident video or not. I intently stare at my phone and count the seconds between each blink, telling myself if this is a loop, then their blinks should be even and occur at the same time, each time. There was no pattern to their blinking. It was erratic and random, just as a person blinking should be. The passing hours are what finally sealed the deal that this was not a weird loop video of some kind. My son's window is visible on camera. 
and I can see on camera that it is getting lighter outside in his room. His curtains keep out just enough light to prevent the camera from exiting night vision, but lets in just enough to be able to tell the sun is rising. I try to figure out what the hell I'm going to do before I leave work. Calling the police comes to mind, but I talk myself out of it. First of all, what am I supposed to say? Someone is in my house that looks like my wife but isn't? Worse yet, what if they are entities of some kind, and the police do go over, and it kills them or something? I decide to tell a co-worker about it. He's a firm believer in the paranormal and might have a suggestion. I show him the video and tell him the story. His initial response of that's creepy as hell doesn't help much, but he says he wants to go over and check it out. He says we both should, to see if not my wife will try and act like my wife. I tell him absolutely not, and he says we should at least go to the house, even if we don't go in. I agree on that, since I wanted to close the garage. We got to my house and walked around the perimeter first. Not sure what we wanted to accomplish by that, but it felt like something we should do. The curtains were all drawn since nobody was there to open them in the morning, so we couldn't see anything. I went to close the garage and suddenly had this overwhelming urge to go inside and investigate. It was like I just had to know what was going on. So in we went. We walked through the kitchen towards the foyer where the stairs are. It's so quiet in our house right now you could hear a feather drop. Forget the pin. We stop at the bottom of the stairs and wait a few seconds. I look at the camera again, and they are still sitting there. I've never been so scared in my life. My co-worker puts his foot on the first step, and I suddenly say, stop, loudly. Forget this. We're out of here, I tell him. Come on. I start making my way back to the kitchen. We hear a loud creak in the floor from upstairs. It's my son's room. He has a very loud, creaky board right in the middle of his floor that's almost impossible not to step on. My wife and I are still deciding if we ever want to fix it, because it will alert us if he's ever up to no good when he gets older, trying to sneak out or something. Come on, come on, come on! I yell as I motion for him to move his ass. We're out of the house in about two seconds. Out on the street, I check my phone. Now only not my son was sitting on the bed. Same blank stare. Not my wife was gone. Oh my god, my co-worker says. That was stupid as hell of us. Do not tell my wife we went inside. She would be so ungodly mad if she found out what we just did. I use my garage door opener in my car to close the door. Before we leave, I look at the camera again. Not my wife is back on the bed with not my son, both staring blankly up at the camera, blinking every few seconds. That was all about four days ago now. Not my wife and not my son are still sitting on the bed, staring up at the camera. They haven't moved a millimeter. We obviously haven't gone back to our house. What do we do? I'm sorry it's taken so long. It's been an emotional month. I felt like I'm losing my mind, 
or already lost it. I've been in the hospital for three weeks. You'll remember I left off at my wife's parents' house, not sure what the hell to do. My wife and I argued about it. My in-laws said, call the priest. I told my wife we're calling the cops and that's it. The day we finally called the cops would be day six. Not my family was still sitting on the bed, staring at the camera. I told the dispatcher there were intruders in my house, leaving out the part where they looked exactly like my family. I told her we were out of the house, but I would meet the police there. She dispatched two units. My wife begged me not to go. I told her I had to be there. I had a foolproof plan. I would take her mum's iPhone and FaceTime with my wife while showing the police the camera on my phone. They would see this as a screwed up situation and hopefully proceed with caution. My coworker friend said he would come with me as well. My friend and I beat the cops to the house. Like most of you mentioned in the comments previously, I was packing heat. I have a concealed carry, so I had my 1911-45 on me. I was not concerned this would bother the cops as I was going to inform them of my permit and that I was currently carrying. What I wasn't going to tell them was that I had my father-in-law's AR-15 in my trunk. It's almost funny how many of you mentioned that was the way to go in my previous entry. I didn't plan on telling the cops about it because I was not planning on needing it. They would come armed and prepared. They showed up and I let them know I was armed and then enacted my plan. I initially told them the story. They looked at each other like I was crazy and they didn't believe me. I FaceTimed my wife so they could see she was in fact not in the house despite what our camera was showing. They still didn't seem to believe me but this did pique their interest. I hung up with my wife and told her I'd call her back as soon as we knew something. So now we're sure this isn't a recording, an officer stated repeating what I said. It's not. The day-night cycle has changed every day. Their blinking is erratic and not cyclical like it was on repeat, I said. I know it's a stupid question, but your wife isn't a twin? The other officer asked. I told him no. My friend spoke up. I have an idea. Turn the volume up. I'll go throw a pebble at the window. He went around back while I turned up the volume to the max. All right, I'm tossing. We heard the light tick sound from outside, but the one second delay on the camera came in loud and clear through my phone. Not my wife moved at the sound of the pebble hitting the window. The first time I'd actually seen her move aside from the time she wasn't on screen when I initially went inside our house the first day. She turned her head towards the window, just slightly, before turning back to the camera. Okay, this is live, an officer said. Okay, sir, I need you and your friend to stay outside here. We're going to go in and find out what's going on here. Should you ask for more units? I asked, hopefully. Not this time. We're going to assess the situation first, they don't appear to be armed, but we're going to be cautious. I opened the garage for them, and they made their way in towards my kitchen door. They radio dispatched that they were headed in and to stand by. They disappeared into my house. A few seconds after they went in, the camera went out. I wanted to vomit 
and I felt like if I put my fingers in my mouth, I'd be able to feel my heart since it had leapt so far up into my throat. Damn it, I yelled to my friend. I immediately popped the trunk and got my rifle out and ran into the garage. My friend right behind me. We got inside just in time to hear a low guttural howl from upstairs, demonic sounding almost, along with raised voices from the police. There were several shots. Need backup. Shots fired. He was cut off. Oh my God, my friend howled. He was scared, but so was I. Damn it, I knew it, I said running up the stairs. My son's room is the first one you come to after getting upstairs, so his wall is also what you see as you walk up the stairs. As I reached the top, I laid into the wall with my rifle. It has a 30-round magazine, but I felt like I fired a 100 shots. I fired all over the place, knowing full well the ammo would go through the wall like it was paper, concentrating on where my son's bed would be, but also near the door and towards the floor as well, in case whatever these things were thought to duck. We heard shrieks of pain coming from the room, then nothing. My friend and I paused for a minute before deciding to go in because the camera was still out. We heard a whimpering coming from the room. There was a dead cop in the hallway we had to step over. It was awful, and I'll never be able to unsee it. His head was several feet away from his body in the threshold to our guest room. We found the other cop in my son's room right inside the doorway. He had several large holes in his torso, as if he'd been impaled. Exactly what I was afraid would happen had happened. I called the cops, and whatever these things were, killed them. When we entered the room, we found the source of the whimpering was not my wife. She was laying on her back on the floor, holding her torso that was bullet-ridden and breathing heavy. The scene was awful. I can hardly put into words how awful it was. I know now, just like I did then, they weren't my family. It shouldn't have been hard. I should have been able to just go in and finish it. But instead, I fell to my knees. Not my wife. Begged for her life. I don't want to die, honey. She whimpered. I wanted to have more kids. I can't die now. I looked over at not my son, who had to be dead. He'd taken two shots at least to the head. Or what was left of it. He had several more in his torso, and one or two on his legs and arms. If you have kids, seeing their lifeless, bullet-ridden body is a special kind of hell. Again, I knew it wasn't my son, but it was. I was going to be sick. I'd killed my family. I turned back to not my wife. She was just... She was acting just like my wife. It even mimicked her anxiety about death that she has had in the past year or so. It's not her, man. I forgot my friend was even there. It's not her. Shoot it. I know what you guys are thinking. How many times has this happened in the movies and you scream at your TV for the main character to just shoot the imposter because it's not their loved one? I guess movies get it right somehow. 
I'll never roll my eyes at the character who can't kill an imposter again. Please don't shoot me, it begged. My hands were shaking as I aimed at it. Why couldn't I do it? I know. I knew this wasn't my wife. Listen, man, my friend began calmly. Look at it. Its blood is yellow. It's not your family. Was it yellow? It was. Seeing my family slain was so traumatic I hadn't even noticed their blood wasn't red. I steadied my aim, and not my wife suddenly stopped begging. She began that guttural, terrifying shriek, and something black or gray started to protrude from her mouth, like a tentacle or something. And I fired. At that range, her head more or less exploded. Whatever these things were, they appeared to be mortal. I was still on my knees, and my friend was out in the hallway just outside the door. We heard the sounds of approaching police sirens. I'd forgotten one of the cops had gotten a shots-fired call over the radio before being killed. It seemed like it had been hours, but it had only been about five minutes since the police had gone in. My friend went downstairs to let the police know what to expect. I stood up and slowly made my way into the hallway. I was lightheaded and felt like I was going to be sick. My bedroom is adjacent to my son's, so the doorway is about a foot to the right of my son's doorway. My door was closed, but as I exited my son's room, my door opened. Not me walked out into the hallway, wearing exactly the same thing I was at the time. I was shocked in place. I couldn't move, but it did. It walked towards me, and its right arm turned black and morphed into what appeared to be a tentacle. It was wiggling around like a squid or octopus appendage. When he thrust his arm at me, it solidified and impaled me through my abdomen, and then stabbed me in the left leg just above the kneecap. I fell to the ground in pain. Its tentacle arm was wiggling again. Why did you kill my family? It asked. When it spoke, its voice changed pitch several times. It was my voice, then much deeper, then normal again. It alternated several times saying that one sentence. It moved in closer. The rifle was gone, but I still had my forty-five. I pulled it out and got a shot off in its right knee. It howled. As not me fell to his knee, I fired a couple more shots, getting two into its abdomen and left side of its ribs. It breathed heavily for a few seconds before I used the last of my strength to aim proper and shot not me in the face. Its blood was also yellow. I lay there bleeding out, thinking this was it for sure. I still had some strength from adrenaline kicking in, so I took my belt off and tried to make a tourniquet for my leg. With my stomach wound, it was hard to give it a good yank to tighten it. I then took off my shirt and balled it up and packed my stomach wound and applied as much pressure as I could. Being a nurse probably saved my life. I passed out, but the measures I took must have kept me alive long enough for EMS to arrive. I heard raised voices and the sound of pounding coming up the stairs before I went out. It was probably a cop, but I felt pressure from somebody trying to keep my wound pack. 
before I went out. I was in and out of consciousness as EMS arrived, along with probably every cop in the city. I was wheeled downstairs and put in an ambulance. But while I was being loaded onto the gurney upstairs, I heard cops freaking out. And rightfully so. They'd lost two brothers. And there were three other bodies. Did he kill his brother? Are, are they twins? Probably referring to not me's dead body. Or his whole family. Put him on armed guard while at the hospital. He'll probably be getting charged. As I was getting placed into the ambulance, I saw my friend talking to a group of about ten cops, all listening very intently to what he was saying. I went out again in the ambulance. I woke up in the ER. My wounds had been treated. The tentacle hadn't been more than a few inches wide, so it was just slightly larger than a large knife. They'd sewn me up, and I found that I was currently receiving a blood transfusion due to blood loss at my home. My wife had authorized them to do whatever they had needed while I was unconscious. She was also extremely, extremely pissed that I went into the house. We're okay now, but that's a story for another day. I was in the hospital for three weeks since I ended up getting an infection and almost went septic. I needed quite a few antibiotics. For the entire three weeks, I had cops in my room with questions. After about a week, they released me and no longer had me under armed guard. I told them absolutely everything, not caring if it made sense or not, and thank God my friend had come with me since he was able to corroborate this weird story. Midway through my hospital stay, men with suits came to pay me a visit. They were government. I knew right away. They said they were FBI, but I don't know if I believe that. They wanted to talk about not my family. The police chief and the coroner were involved, and it was very hush-hush. They made it clear this was not to get out to the public. This is where I have to apologize, probably, for an anticlimactic ending to this ordeal. I don't know what not me and my family were, neither do they. The only thing we know is that they were sentient creatures that looked like us and had yellow blood. I begged the coroner to tell me about their autopsies, but he said he wasn't allowed to say. He must have felt bad for me, since I received a bouquet of flowers a couple days later. The card inside the envelope read, We don't know what they are. They have the same organs we do, but in different parts of their body aside from their brain. But what's red and pink inside us is green and yellow inside them. They're humanoid creatures, but whatever they are, they aren't human. The government thinks they may be extraterrestrial. Destroy this letter. ASAP. We had our house professionally cleaned. It was almost surely a government team since they contacted us on behalf of the police. We could not find any Google reviews or websites for the company online. My wife and I are not going to go back to our house. We would love to burn it down, but there's no way to do that and avoid suspicion of arson at this point. We'll end up taking a huge loss on the property, since everyone in our neighborhood knows there was an incident involving multiple deaths in the house, but don't know what actually happened. It'll be hard to sell, but eventually it will. We're going to move on from here. 
I told everyone at work it was a home invasion and they bought it. I'll go back to work in a couple of weeks and we'll start looking for a new house. Again, I'm sorry. I know everyone wanted a concrete ending and to know exactly what the hell those things were, but we just don't know. Alien sounds good to me. I've been thinking if they were supernatural or actual demons, gunfire wouldn't have been able to kill them. It's just hard to say. If they were aliens, why did they just sit there and creep in our house for a week? They didn't even try to take our lives. It's hard to wrap my head around. If it is aliens, keep your eyes peeled out there. There could be more of them. Whenever you flush a toilet, wash your hands, or basically do anything that involves water and a drain, the leftover stuff ends up where I work. It's an often overlooked necessity of any somewhat large town, although I'd almost argue that it's basically just as important as a police station or a fire brigade. There'd be no place to live if the ground was basically inundated with crap all the time, and not even considering the extreme environmental impact. It would just be gross. I've worked at a wastewater treatment facility for about 14 and a half years now. I'd have to say that it's arguably one of the best jobs in terms of pay and job security. I'd recommend it to more people if the smell of raw sewage wasn't such a turnoff to most. Although, actually, at least in my mind, it's hardly that bad unless you're standing right next to the main intake line that feeds the waste into the bar screen. It's also important to note that if you've had any water from, well, basically any source, it's probably been through a couple of treatments before. Keep that in mind when taking a nice swig of water after a particularly tough workout or a long day at work. I don't mean to say this to gross anyone out. Frankly, once the water is processed, it's not only clean enough to pump back out into the rivers and creeks, but it's clean enough to drink. I say basically because I don't want to get sued. Please don't drink treated wastewater right out of the filters. Anyway, my 14 years have been, well, interesting, to say the least. Most people often contorting their faces in disgust after I tell them what my job entails seem to think that it must be incredibly monotonous, and frankly, they wouldn't be wrong. Well, they would only be slightly wrong. I do have to say that every once in a while, there is something that you find entangled in the bar screen that really leaves you with a lot of questions. I suppose I should explain how this whole thing works for the sake of clarification before I go any further. The untreated raw sewage comes in all as a single flow of water. A bar screen is the first real filter. It's essentially a vertical conveyor belt that consists of several horizontal bars that are spaced far enough from each other to catch anything overly large. It also does a rather good job at clearing out any inorganic material. Wet wipes, condoms, tampons, wads of paper towels, and pieces of plastic are the bulk of what is retrieved in this filter. Its purpose is to take these large and non-organic chunks out of the other bits of sewage, separating them, and allowing the rest of the sewage that continues to be organic and therefore decomposable. Due to the nature of this filter, most of the strange things I've found were retrieved here, although some of the stuff 
has continued on to the next parts. After that, it runs through another sort of filter, and a similar process happens, although by using a different method. The water is spun at a specific rate, kind of like in a top-loaded washing machine, and as gravity does its work, the heavier stuff settles to the bottom. This stuff, which is mostly just poop, is taken to a warehouse on the property, and with the magic of some chemistry, it's turned into some sort of very nutrient-rich, blackish, clay-like paste. It's normally sold to farmers as a better version of manure, and as someone who's used part of it in my own garden, that stuff works better than any miracle grow I've ever used. Plus, after it's processed, it doesn't even smell like crap anymore. It just smells like wet dirt. After that, the water passes through a bunch of clarifiers, which are basically huge basins. Oxygen is pumped through the water, and as that happens, natural bacteria begin to eat at all the nutrients in the poop water until it's clear. This is repeated around three times, at least in my facility. And after it's checked for its purity and sterilized with UV rays, it's released back into the river that runs through the town. I snicker to myself whenever I see people fishing and swimming in that river, but like I said before, it's actually pretty clean. Now that I'm done explaining everything, I suppose that I should actually start off. My first freak occurrence happened about a week into the job. I was a fresh-faced biochem major, and even though the smell still made me gag at that point, I was determined to move up the ranks. I got the job thinking I'd be able to climb the corporate ladder, eventually culminating in me being the head chemist. This never happened, but my dreams certainly were a bit... optimistic, to say the least. Anyway, as I drove my crappy Mazda MPV down the dirt road towards the main office, I noticed a huge gathering of people around the main intake channel. I initially thought to ignore this, but then I noticed someone in a white lab coat with a confused expression on his face. The people who worked in the lab almost never visited the actual sewage lines like the general workers did, so this piqued my interest enough for me to check it out myself. As I approached the gathering of people, I could hear an apprehensive tone filling the air, as lab technicians and laborers, like me, all wore worried expressions. I had to push people out of the way in order to actually see what was going on. To say it shocked me would be an understatement. The water looked like black pitch, glassy like obsidian and viscous like molasses. It smelled like burning plastic. This would have been enough of a conundrum if it weren't for the fact that these weren't the only things. The surface of the water swelled and wriggled, and it took me a moment to realize that there were probably hundreds of thousands of worms squirming under the surface. In fact, as I looked at it more, it seemed that the blackish water was promptly just coating the worms. And as we tried to figure out what the hell was going on, we realized that they weren't just on top of the water. The main channel is about 20 feet deep, and as we tried to separate the masses of worms with a large stick, we discovered that the worms went all the way down to the bottom. Eventually, the main supervisor of the facility told us all to go home, and that everything would be fine by the next day. 
We laughed at him, although surely enough, by the next shift, everything was back to normal. To say that the majority of my co-workers and I were seriously confounded by this would be doing a disservice to the word. But there was one co-worker of mine that was hardly phased by this at all. I only really worked with this guy for a couple of months. One day he just didn't show up for work, and ever since then, I've never actually heard anything about him. I'm not about to give out his real name, so we'll call him Vasily. He clearly wasn't from here. His thick Slavic accent was enough to give that away almost immediately. He told us that he was from Kiev, and that he moved here with his wife and three kids. Although, I've never once heard him talk about them at all. He certainly was quite the character, and even though this sounds really mean, I tried to avoid him unless it was absolutely necessary for me to talk to him. I wasn't alone in my aversion to Vasily, though. In fact, the people who I worked with referred to him as the vampire, due to his unfortunate and uncanny resemblance to the monster in Nosferatu. His head was bald, and his face was so angular it looked like his cheekbones were cut out of stone. His eyes were so dark brown that they looked totally black, and his trademark, wide-eyed, almost predatory gaze felt piercing enough to bore holes in you. He was around 6'6", six, six, and his whole body was just really long. He reminded me of an arachnid. His mannerisms didn't really help his cause. He was the type of person to stand just a little too close and make a little bit too much eye contact during a conversation. And every once in a while, I would spot him staring at me as I worked on something by myself. Despite this, he actually was fairly harmless and was quite the hard worker. Part of me had a suspicion that he was on the spectrum or something, and I felt really bad for him. I even planned to work up the courage to try and get him invited with the rest of my co-workers to hit some bars, although he politely refused the offer and waved his veiny hand away, claiming that he didn't like beer. Since I was new, my only experiences with him were basically ones after the whole worm thing. But according to my co-workers, he acted much stranger and much happier than normal after the accident. One of them let's call him Travis, even heard him laughing his head off near the main intake channel during a night shift right before it happened. Of course, he eventually packed his crap and left without any sort of notice, which prompted the supervisor to call the police. He was never, ever late, and my boss feared that something had happened to him. Once the police broke into the studio apartment he lived in, they found nothing. All the rooms were empty and it was like nobody had ever lived there. Travis actually accompanied the cops on their wellness check, and he claimed that while he was inside of Vasily's apartment, there was just the faintest smell of burning plastic, although Travis was always the type to embellish. In the weeks, months, and years after this, my co-workers and I did our best to try and rationalize this as much as possible. Adrian, one of the only lab techs who ever talked to the general workers, theorized that the black sludge was somehow a diluted form of the fertilizer that we make. He hypothesized that there was some sort of runoff 
and as the nutrient-rich solution mixed with and thickened the sewage flowing through the main intake channel, worms in the surrounding dirt swam into it to eat the poop and dirt mix. It was a theory that my co-workers and I had to accept. I mean, looking back, it was so full of crap, but we had to believe something. Of course, not everything I've found has been so strange, although these things are still really unexplainable. One time, when I was monitoring the bar screen, I noticed that it was almost straining, like it was carrying a really heavy load. Upon further inspection, I found out that it was carrying a really heavy load. It was a freaking bowling ball. A 16-pound bowling ball. I really, really didn't know how someone managed to fit an entire bowling ball into the sewage system, but there it was, all shiny, despite the fact that it was coated in a thick layer of last night's dinner. We still have that ball. It actually sits in the room where the bar screen can be watched next to the poop money jar. I think that the title of the jar is self-explanatory. When I first joined, it was at around 522 bucks. Now it's at around 876. The bar screen room is my primary position at the facility. Since even though all of our noses are desensitized, I can actually stand the smell of poop for hours and hours on end. A feat which most people who work here aren't exactly able to do without getting a little bit of fresh air. It might seem silly, but my position is important for several reasons. Mainly, it's just a good safeguard to make sure the screen is actually working. If, for whatever reason, the screen malfunctions, the flow needs to be redirected immediately. If any of the stuff that normally gets filtered out ends up stuck in the basins or in the pumps, blockages can form. And when you're dealing with thousands of gallons a minute, you cannot have any sort of blockages. My job also serves a sort of secondary purpose, though. Criminals tend to flush evidence down the toilet if law enforcement is on their trail. And it's our job to recover said evidence and report the items to the police. I've probably uncovered untold amounts of weed and thousands of crack pipes during my 14-year tenure. There is a normal amount of this stuff found pretty much every year. But I noticed that there was a sharp increase during the years of 2008 to 2010. Obviously, this lines up with a recession. And as a result of increased poverty and unemployment, our area, which already isn't really a white picket fence suburb, had a dramatic crime increase. I didn't actually feel much of the pain of an economic slump, though, since the city is always going to need people to deal with sewage. But I certainly realized, but I certainly realized it to be true when I discovered that my MPV was missing one morning. To be fair, I did leave the windows open, but never in my mind did I think that anyone would want to steal that old hunk of crap. I was wrong. All of this really did culminate in one event, though. I had arrived in my new Civic this time, and as I manned my post and prepared myself for another day of watching the screen filter stuff out, I noticed that there were a couple of brownish boxes that were bundled in tape. They floated at the top of the sewage, and as I watched one after another swim by, I made sure to radio in the supervisor. We recovered forty little boxes of this stuff. And surprise, surprise, they were kilos of cocaine. 
Some people from the DEA arrived, and they tried desperately to figure out where the kilos came from. Although by the point they arrived to us, the poop had degraded everything to a point that no arrests could be made from cocaine we found. They told us that the stuff was between $795,000 and $1.2 million. There was a notable police presence on the site for about a week after the incident. I suppose that they were trying to see if any more kilos revealed themselves to no avail. This annoyed me at first, since they made an officer sit right next to me during every shift, and it was kind of frustrating to hear someone continuously complain about the smell for hours on end. Eventually, the cops gave up, and they left the site with empty hands, which was really damn convenient, because about six days after they left, I found something else. It wasn't a kilo of cocaine. The news was all over the city, and search efforts were widespread. A blonde-haired, fair-skinned eight-year-old girl was drawing with some chalk in front of her yard when she seemingly vanished out of thin air. There were no leads, no evidence, and only one real witness. One person thought they saw an unfamiliar beige Chevy Astro speeding through the neighborhood in which the girl lived around the time of disappearance, but that was all the detectives had. I remember watching the news during this, and since I have a bit of interest in true crime, I followed it extensively. I watched as the father of this little girl got thinner, and thinner with each news appearance, and I can still hear how broken his voice sounded when he begged whoever took his little sweetheart to give her back, safely. Eventually, the news stopped running stories about the little girl, and I just assumed that whatever had happened was done and that she was already dead. She had been missing for about five months when I found it. It was a heavy, dark blue comforter, and as I put it aside and inspected it, I realized that it was covered in some dark brownish stain that wasn't feces. As I unfolded the blanket and felt around it, my fingers brushed something kind of hard, and as I scrutinized the small hard bits, they looked like little white pebbles. Unsure of what to do, I radioed my supervisor again, who called the police. I was rather unamused at this. If anything, they'd be snooping around the facility again, and that was something I really didn't look forward to. On the other hand, though, the blanket was seriously out of place, and I knew that something was really wrong. My fears were confirmed when I saw detectives from the FBI canvassing the whole place a couple of days later. Interrogation rooms really have some sort of magic that makes you feel like you're guilty of something, even when you're not. I'd have to say that those three hours were some of the worst in my life, and as a stern-faced man in a suit questioned me, I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt my stomach drop even further when they told me about the nature of their questioning. The stain was predictably blood, which isn't really something that causes too much alarm for me. Tampons obviously exist, and sometimes you generally cut yourself on accident. Not every blood stain is murder, after all. It was what they told me next, which made me really feel sick. Those little white pebbles were identified as teeth. Teeth that most likely came from a child's mouth. DNA evidence proved that the blood and teeth belonged to a little eight-year-old girl 
who had gone missing a couple of months ago. There was also an unidentified male whose DNA was found on the blanket. One tag was still on the comforter, and it was traced back to a purchase in 2006 by a realtor and a mother of three. When she was questioned, she claimed that she had given the blanket to her youngest son after he moved out of the house. Of course he was questioned next, and from what I've heard about the case, that sick man barely lasted 30 minutes before he admitted to everything. Even if he said nothing, they already had a good case on the guy. His DNA matched the unknown male's DNA, and the little girl's hair was found in his garage and on his clothes. He had sold a beige Chevy Astro on Craigslist about two months prior to his arrest, and his new car had traces of her blood all over it. He eventually told them where the body was, on the condition that he could escape the death penalty, and eventually they found her. She was buried under a massive oak tree in a forest preserve, 20 miles away from the treatment facility. By the time the cops found her, she was already mostly decomposed, but they were able to tell how she died, and by using dental records, they found out that the teeth in the blanket matched her as well. She had several stab wounds to the chest and a post-mortem blunt injury to her face, which knocked out her teeth. There was also a great deal of internal trauma. That man had raped her several times and kept her locked in his house for a couple of months before finally killing her. According to his own testimony, she had tried to escape, and in a fit of rage, he stabbed her 14 times and then wrapped her corpse in a blue comforter. The killer said that during a particularly harsh turn, her body slid and slammed into the right side door handle in the back seat, busting her face open. He eventually buried her in the closest wooded area and then tossed the blanket into a nearby stream. He was smart enough to know that his best bet was to cast the blanket as far away from her actual burial site in order to distance the evidence as much as possible. What he didn't know was that the stream was actually used as a wastewater channel from a car factory, and that it led directly to us. I think almost half of the people working at the facility at the time quit, simply due to the media circus, and the fact that there was some sort of inexorable second-hand guilt that permeated through us. I remember for the very first time, feeling that I was totally useless. I thought back to my initial reaction and hated myself for it. Some girl had just died, and I was a bit more concerned about cops being a headache. I actually had to testify in court, along with a couple other of my co-workers, and as a result, we got to watch the whole trial. The little girl's father looked like a skeleton at this point and his eyes were always glinting with tears. I couldn't possibly imagine what he was going through. The guy got his wish, and instead of being sentenced to death, he was given life without the opportunity of parole. Ever since then, my co-workers and I rarely do anything outside of work. It's just demoralizing now, at least for me. Although I guess there are other reasons for our chemistry being really bad especially after what happened last year. Travis had always been the jovial type, 
and frankly, he pretty much was the only person who kept my spirits out of the gutters for too long. Without him, I don't really know what I would have done after the murder. Of course, he was still the type to tell a couple of white lies every once in a while, so when he told me he was having a son, I really didn't believe him at first. It wasn't until he showed me photos of his wife's ultrasound. I was really happy for him. Frankly, it was a nice turn for the positive, all things considered. He named his son Blake, and oh my good gracious he never stopped talking about Blake for about a year and a half after he was born. Of course I was genuinely happy for him, but the man knew how to talk, and talk for hours. After about a year and a half though, I noticed that he didn't bring up Blake nearly as much. I attributed this to the fact that he had finally run out of things to tell us and wrote it off as unimportant. Every year we have a bring your kid to work day. This is a holiday that is normally only honored by the people who work in the labs. Even if I had a kid, I would never want my child sitting next to me in the bar screen room, which is why it was a surprise that Travis was actually going to bring his kid over. I remember when he told us that his son had a keen interest in seeing what we did here, and I remember thinking it was a joke, but I stopped that when for the very first time, I noticed that he almost looked nervous. As the day got closer, I could tell that he was worried about it, and it certainly did weird me out that Travis, of all people, would be so uncomfortable. I initially attributed this fear to the fact that he was scared about what his kid would think of the place, but when the day actually arrived, I understood why he was scared. There was a reason why he didn't really say much about his son. I watched as Blake rocked back and forth and flapped his hands fervently, occasionally making a strange noise or hitting himself in the head. For this reason, he wore a dark blue helmet which shielded him from his own blows. He was wearing a weighted vest, and he clutched a yellow bunny doll in his left hand. I knew this array of symptoms well. Mainly, I've seen them in my own sister. I could tell that Travis was incredibly scared. He undoubtedly felt all of our eyes on him and his son, and I began to feel really horrible. Part of me wanted to try and convince the supervisor to not allow this, for Travis's own sake. He almost looked sick as he waved to us, trying and failing to sound like his normal, cheery self as his son hit himself in the face. Travis was experiencing a great deal of embarrassment, and it was awful to watch, even if from afar. Although I didn't voice this concern, Blake could have been autistic, but he was still a young boy, and Travis was his father. And if Travis wanted to take his son to work as a nice gesture, then damn it, he should be allowed to do so. I think it was six hours into my shift when I heard the radio call. The day was painfully normal, despite the fact that I noticed little kids walking all over the place, with their fathers in tow. But that all changed really quick. It was Travis on the other end, and he sounded like he had just seen a ghost. He was bent over wrenching on something, and when he looked back, Blake was gone. We all immobilized as much as possible and began to scan the whole facility. I even remember giving Travis a playful punch in an attempt to calm him. We would find him soon. Of course we would. 
We did find him eventually. He was in one of the secondary clarifiers. It turns out that bacteria that decompose poop also do a good job at decomposing people. And even though poor Blake was probably only there for a good 40 minutes, he had already started to bloat. It took another 10 minutes before he was finally retrieved from the large pool of murky water. I did my best not to look, and I tried to shut my eyes, but my morbid curiosity got to me, and as they pulled a white sheet over Blake's head, I spotted a now brown bunny still clutched in his left hand. On some nights, I'll hear the way Travis scream that day, and it'll wake me up and keep me up. I've heard some terrible things, but hearing him beg to God to give his son back, that is just the worst. I'm convinced that there's no greater pain for a parent or for anyone losing their child. We all watched the security cam footage, and I felt my stomach churn as I watched a small figure walk up to the clarifier. As he walked along the balcony that's above the water, he dropped his little stuffed animal, and as it sank into the turbid water, he jumped in after it. Blake was seven years old. He had autism, and he couldn't swim. Couple this with the fact that he was wearing a weighted vest in order to keep him calm, and you can picture what happened next. He sank like a rock. It almost pained me more when I noticed a larger figure walking near the clarifier after Blake had sunk. It was Travis, looking around wildly. This was about three minutes after Blake sank, and if Travis knew where his son was, he could have easily saved him. Obviously, Travis didn't really come back to work for a while after that, and so I was tasked with covering his shift, something that I was happy to do. Travis normally worked at night monitoring the clarifiers, making sure that airflow, temperature, and nutrient content all looked right. I wasn't terribly experienced at this, but I figured that I'd eventually get the hang of it, and after a while, I was good enough to be left alone without someone watching me. And as Travis recovered psychologically, I found my new home at the clarifiers. I specifically avoided the clarifier in which Blake drowned, only going over the balcony real quick before going into the control room to check on how the levels were. I probably did this for two months, until Travis finally got well enough to come back to work. By that, I mean that he didn't break down crying whenever he stepped foot on the facility. If it were me, I would have just quit. But Travis had been working here since he was 18, and for longer than me. This was basically his whole life, and it's easier said than done to just up and move on, I guess. Every time he worked clarifiers, he still made me check on the one his son died in. He might have pulled himself together enough to work, but he certainly was not all okay up in his head. Understandably, his whole demeanor changed, and he went from being the class clown to being almost as withdrawn as the vampire. The change made me feel quite bad for him, although each time I tried to talk to him, he was aloof and uncaring. I stopped really trying to talk to him after a while. I just figured that he wanted space, and all things considered, I'd give him his space gladly. I think it was this space that I gave him, mentally, 
that allowed me not to break down when I heard the news that he had taken his own life. I've always hated funerals, although I think I hated this one the most, simply due to the fact that the whole event was just stained with Travis's guilt. His wife almost reminded me of the little girl's father, and his whole family just looked horrible. Pretty much everyone I worked with attended, even most of the lab techs showed up. Our supervisor gave him a eulogy, and I really did my best to say a couple of nice things about him, although my words were broken and softly spoken. I remember vomiting and passing out as soon as I got home, and when I woke up, I drank myself back to sleep again. The whole thing was just so wrong on so many levels. Travis was probably one of my best friends at this point, and he was always such a good-spirited person. The fact that he was the one who was dealt the short stick in the game of life was just so unfair. Once again, I was the one who had to cover his place until we could find and train someone to cover his spot again. The facility felt empty without him, and I just hated every second of my job because of it. But I did continue on. Travis would have been disappointed if I left now. Eventually I got accustomed to the absence, and even though it still felt wrong, I think I got used to it. That was until the month anniversary of his death. I was in the control room, monitoring the clarifiers like normal when I noticed that one of the secondary clarifiers had a rather strange alert. The temperature reading was 35 Fahrenheit. Just as a bit of background, the actual night air was 75 Fahrenheit. Water is normally colder than air, that's not too unusual, but 40 whole degrees colder? That was unheard of. I initially suspected a faulty sensor, but I then remembered that we had replaced them all no longer than three months prior and the sensors we have can last for decades. The air was muggy, and it roused a bit of sweat on my face as I ran over to the clarifier in which Blake had drowned. I knew something was going on when I noticed that all the lights around it were off. I clicked on a flashlight and pressed on, breathing heavily as I climbed up the metal stairs and got myself onto the balcony. I ran along the metal grate floor towards the temperature sensor, and as the beam of flashlight bounced around, I saw just the slightest hint of yellow in the water. I aimed the flashlight at the yellow and felt sick to my stomach. It was a yellow bunny rabbit doll floating in the water. I whipped the flashlight all over the place and spotted more and more of the bunnies, their black button eyes staring at me. I think I screamed, but as I did, I could feel the grated metal underneath me. I think I screamed, but as I did, I could feel the grated metal underneath my feet begin to crumble. Our facility is about 50 years old, the balconies were rusted quite a bit, but they never really seemed weak or unsafe to stand on. I remember how cold the water was, and how the murkiness swallowed up any sort of vision I could have. I remember how cold the water was, and how the murkiness swallowed up any sort of vision I could have had underneath the water. The balcony was about 15 feet above the actual surface of the water, 
And so when I hit the surface, it disoriented me quite considerably and knocked the breath out of me. I realized that I didn't know which way was up anymore, and as my diaphragm tensed up in shock, I began to flail my arms all around, doing my best to get my bearings fruitlessly. Eventually, after my body began to hunger oxygen even more than before, I just went limp and let my body float up with the bubbles of air. I took a deep breath as I surfaced, and I hurriedly swam to the edge of the basin. Once I was back on dry land, I peered out into the clear fire again, and all of the yellow bunnies were gone. After a couple of days, all of the balconies were replaced with new ones in order to prevent such a thing from happening again, and the temperature sensor was replaced too, although it was found to be in perfect working order when they took it out. It was safe to say that my position was considerably cushier than before after the accident. During my struggle to escape, I really messed up my hand on some brick, and considering that I was swimming in poop water, I wasn't shocked when it got infected a day later. In an attempt to keep me from suing, they bumped up my pay and cut my hours a bit. Not that any of it mattered to me. That was 11 months ago, and today, after a long time coming, I finally put in my two weeks' notice. Frankly, I should have quit a long time ago. I wasn't really moving up in the corporate ladder like I had anticipated, and now that Travis was dead, the job was just depressing. And that's all ignoring all the messed up crap that happens here. I only work on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Some people work here six days a week, ten hours a day. I really do wonder if they've seen anything else. I'm fairly certain that they have. Right now, I'm basically planning to move to a different, smaller treatment facility. With my knowledge here, I think a smaller place would be a bit nicer. I just hope that I can distance myself as much as possible, although I know that's basically impossible at this point. Because every single time I drink some water, or flush my toilet, or basically do anything, I know where that water came from, and where it will return. I know that it's been laced with worms, cocaine, and murder evidence. I know that, in a way, all of the refuse of society, just like the refuse that we defecate, has ended up where I worked. And now you do too. Plus, I've noticed that my apartment now smells like burning plastic, for some reason. Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com.